They're moving their music because I'm liable to preach the music too. I've always learned, wondered how I could preach announcements, you know. Wonderful job, guys. Appreciate that song. I'm glad one of these days there's where I ever will abide. Make sure you do because the question's not eternity. Everybody has eternal life. It's just where you're going to spend it. I've chosen to spend it with our Lord, celestial city of heaven. We're in the book of Romans on Sunday morning, the book of Romans. We're at chapter number 5, Romans chapter number 5. And I'm going to be preaching on the subject of four fruits of salvation. Four fruits of salvation. This would kind of be an incentive to those who are not saved of why you should get saved. These are fruits that you'd love to put in your basket, so to speak. And so let's look at what the Apostle Paul has to say in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. You found your place. We invite you to stand with your copy of the Scriptures open. And let's honor and reverence the reading of God's holy and errant infallible inspired word together. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, let me stop by saying, I've said this for 14 years now. And by the way, we're starting on 15 today. I've said this. Anytime you see a wherefore or a therefore, you ought to know what it's there for. <laughs> it's always pointing back to what's already been said. So in conjunction of that, Paul is saying, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into His grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet Without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Father, thank you again for the privilege and the high honor to stand behind the sacred desk and proclaim the truths of the Word of God that transforms our life. God, be our helper this morning. Please be our strength. Give us an anointing and unction, zeal and passion of the Holy Ghost of God to preach your Word in a way that, God, you're glorified and our lives are changed. We'll ask it in the strong name of the Lord Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. You must be seated. I feel in my heart that I should have you to stand one more time and read that because you didn't shout like you should have. That, that text right there is full of glory. It's cram-packed full. But Paul gives us in this text four fruits 
of salvation. Paul has spent the last four chapters explaining to his readers just how God saves sinners. That's why this is my favorite book. A book to tell us just how God saves sinners. The entire world, you know, is guilty before the living God on the basis that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, God's standard is perfection. He'll not accept anything less. Nothing at the bargaining table, no. And yet, the Bible says, knowing that truth, there is still none righteous, no, not one. No one can save themselves Therefore, we got to conclude, I'm still in the book of Romans, we got to conclude that all men everywhere are in desperate need of a Savior. A Savior. God saves man apart from the works of the law, apart from any human effort or wisdom. God's salvation is absolutely free. It is a free gift to all who will receive it by faith alone in Christ alone. The Spirit of the living God has convinced all of humanity that that is the truth that all men everywhere need to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I don't believe anything else. Well, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I don't care what you are. God has convinced all men everywhere there are sinners in need of a Savior. If you'll trust Him, you'll be saved. I, I believe the book. I know we mask our doubt I know we mask our unbelief and our ungodliness and our unrighteousness with many different terms and labels, but God's wrote the need upon your heart. You know that's true. Now, with that being said, there's a question that arises. If I were to accept the Lord Jesus as my Savior, what would I get in return? If you ask me, that's a valid question. If you ask me, that's a very good question. If I were to give my life to Christ, what would I get in return? I believe no one needs to accept anything or anyone without understanding exactly what you get in return. And that is the theme of Romans chapter number 5 in this text. So Paul tells us everything we get when we accept Him? No. Hold on a minute. When you receive Christ... It is unsearchable riches what you get in Him. Undiscovered treasure. It is bountiful. His coffers are full. But Paul gives us at least four, four fruits of salvation. Four blessings from receiving the Lord Jesus. And I believe that they are sufficient enough to convince any lost person to give their life to Christ. So you're here this morning. You know your need. Your need is Jesus. You need to give him your life to receive the gift of eternal life and to make heaven your home. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need the war with God to be over. You need some peace. You need those things that you know of. And if you give your life, what will you receive? Well, verse 1 says, and I think it's enough, that if you receive Christ as Savior, you'll get peace with God. Verse 1, I love, it's my favorite in chapter 5. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible taught us last time that justification is through faith 
in the Lord Jesus. He said, and upon that, now we're starting chapter 5, he says, because of that, because of what Christ did, he said, you can be justified by faith and have peace with God through the Lord Jesus. And so, how do you get peace with God? Through justification. We explained that term in several different sermons, but again, it is just as if you had never sinned. It's right in the sight of holy God. That's pretty amazing knowing you and knowing me, and yet we can be declared right in the presence of God. How does that happen? By faith. The unsaved person is at enmity or at war with God. They live in constant warfare against God's person, against God's word, against God's will. You know what it's like. For those who were lost, you remember. Your life was an absolute contrast against the person, the word, and the will of God. You didn't want him to tell you what to do. You didn't want no document. You didn't want any holy script to govern your life, tell you what to do, when to do, or how to do it. Matter of fact, you're born that way. Anti-authoritative creatures by nature and by choice. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I'm going to live my own life. Does anybody remember that? And God says, you're not your own. It is God who stooped in the garden and formed and fashioned Adam's clay and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. You're not your own. You give your life to Christ or the devil has your soul. You don't do what you choose. You're led. You're persuaded. You're enticed. That's what Paul says. And so what is it? You're at constant warfare against God's person, God's word, God's will, God's purpose for your life. Some of y'all lost. You remember what I'm talking about? You remember when you were found? Justified. Just like you had never done anything wrong. How was that? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? See, they have no peace. You remember your life before Christ. There was absolutely no peace whatsoever. And that's all you long for in your soul and in your life. You look for it in relationships and careers and activities, in addictions. You seek after peace and all this world has to offer. But Solomon said, it's vanity, it's vanity, saith the preacher. What does that mean? It's empty and exhausting. You try to find what your soul longs for, that peace in everywhere but the right place. And as a result, you end up exhausted and empty before God. And Isaiah 48 verse 22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. But when a lost man or a lost woman by faith receives Christ as Savior, they are justified before the living God, and immediately they receive peace with God. Does somebody testify this morning? Oh, I remember, I remember, I pray that you remember. In that moment, the war is finally over. God moved in the believer's heart and life. He moves them from enmity to amnesty. Oh, somebody should remember. You laid the arms of rebellion down. God's terms of amnesty had been accepted. You don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on His terms. You lay your arms of rebellion down. You raise up the white flag of surrender, your will for His. And in that moment, you're accepted. You're accepted in God and have peace with God. I just, if I was a choir singer, I'd do it this way. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When God rolled the burden of my soul away. Well, I'd like to be a part of a black choir right now and just sway and bob and 
get excited. You white folks just don't do it. I, I miss going down to South Carolina and preaching to that bunch. We ought to be happy. We ought to be excited. We can lay our head down at night. No matter what the world throws at us and knows, me and God are all right. I may not be all right with the world, but me and God are all right. I've got peace with God. Why? Because I have expressed faith in the Lord Jesus. The new believer in Christ is now justified in the presence of God, has peace with God, and that's something that the world can never give you. Quit looking for what you need in this world. Look into the Word of the living God. The world can give it to you, and praise God, the world can never take it away from you. And Paul said, that's our standing in God. Now, it comes not only through justification, but you know as well, it comes through Jesus. Why? He's the only peace speaker. He is the peace speaker. The peace of God is made possible only through Christ and His sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary in our stead. I like what the Bible said. It is there where mercy and truth are come together. My favorite, we're studying the Psalms on, on Wednesday night. In Psalm 85 and verse 10, we've already studied it, said, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where did that take place? On the cross of Calvary. It is by His precious blood that you and I have our sins forgiven. They're cleansed. And really we have an ideal by the title that he gives us in verse 1 that we have peace of God through, look at this, our Lord Jesus Christ. He used his full title there to help us understand our justification. Why? Because as Lord, he's our sovereign. Jesus, our substitute. Christ, our Savior. That's how we're justified. In Jesus, the true peace speaker. Well... I really could close my book and give an invitation. I think every lost person should be saved. Because all I ever wanted was peace. I've got peace that flows like a river. I can walk through hell by the acre, but I know me and God are all right. You know, I think it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. I don't have to worry about that. Why? Because I've got peace with God. Why? Because of faith in Jesus Christ. He's the peace speaker. He spoke peace to my soul. Do you have that this morning? If not, I'll tell you what, you don't even have to wait on an invitation. You run up here, I've never seen anybody more excited to lead somebody to Jesus than Rusty. He'll be right with you. You're not going to interrupt the service. Just trust the Lord. You need peace, you come. But for those who are not convinced yet and need another fruit, let me give it to you. You not only have fruit, you only have peace, but also verse 2 says that we can have access to God. Who here doesn't need Him? Who here can walk through this world as part of Adam's ruined race, living in a sin-cursed world where there's trouble on every hand and not need God? Well, I need Him. I need Him more now than I've ever needed Him. I need Him every hour. There's access to God for the believer. Look at this. The Bible says in verse 2, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so salvation allows the believer to approach God's majestic throne. What's so good about that? It's a place of grace. Who here don't need the grace of God? Unmerited favor. Well, if you remember in the Old Testament, in the temple and the tabernacle days, both 
The Jews were kept from God's holy presence. They were veiled from that by the veil of the temple. And the Gentiles were even a further away. They were in the outer court and they were separated by a wall in the temple. And also it carried with it a very stern warning of those who violated the warning. Those who went beyond the wall would be killed. But Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. And in that moment, the veil was torn. Paul said in Ephesians 2.14 that that middle wall of petition was tore down. What does that mean? Therefore, Jew or Gentile, red, yellow, black, or white, those who come to Christ in faith believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can reproach the very throne of God. We have been given access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because when he sees me, he doesn't see me. He sees the blood of his darling son that cleanses me from all of my sin. Access to the throne. What a privilege to come and approach holy God with praise, with prayer, with petition, and be accepted in his holy presence. There we can come and draw on the inexhaustible riches of a holy God. His amazing grace. Before salvation, all of Adam's ruined race stood condemned as guilty sinners. But now, in Christ, we are cleansed, justified, and afforded the high privilege of entering in. No, not on the outer courts, not in the holy place, but into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus to find grace to help in a time of need. Oh, I'd just die. I'd just die if I couldn't have access to God. Have you had the week I've had? Have you had the month I've had? Have you had the life I've had? Sure you have. You live down here below. Life is tough, but God is good. I would just die if I had to walk through all of this garbage down here and couldn't get a hold of God. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm never alone. Morning, noon, and night. I can call on him. And Jeremiah said, he'll answer you. I've proved that's true. Does anybody else just feel the presence of the Lord in this place? Hmm. I believe I'd just get out of my chair and pew or seat wherever you are. I'd, I'd run to Jesus if I knew I had no access with God. If you're lost and undone, your prayers are empty and void. Unless you cry out in repentance. Because the Bible says a broken and a contrite heart, he'll, he'll not refuse. You can come to him in repentance and faith in the gospel. And God will hear you. God will save you. God will adopt you. God will accept you. And he'll give you access to the very throne of God. Where Hebrews says, there is the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. By the way, I've got to tell you that that's practical and that's true. But it's also a preview of glory. That's what he says here. He said we're able to come into his grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this is a preview, Paul says, of the glory that is to come. Say, with such a perfect standing in Christ, can't get any better. Our hearts rejoice to that coming future day when we all will be physically ushered in to the very throne room of the living God and behold Him face to face in all of His glory. I can't wait. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, in my prayer time and my time of worship, my, my time of praise, whatever it is, I, I don't know, do you? I, I, I do. I mean, I, vis, I mean, in my mind, in my mind, I try to visualize the presence of the living God. I, I don't know that I've got a good imagination. I don't, I don't know that I spiritualize things very well, but it feels good. I enjoy the experience in my heart and my mind as I'm seeking the Lord. Sometimes I just feel in my mind I could see him there before the mighty throne of the living God with his arms open. Sometimes I just in my mind, because what I'm feeling in my heart, it's like the Lord leans over and just gives an embrace. Is anybody with me this morning? That's the best my mind can do because of the truth that's in my heart and in my mind. But as our choir sings, as the word of God speaks concerning that day, I really do long. I long for the day that we are ushered in to the very presence of the living God. And we get to stand before the mighty and majestic throne of grace and behold our Savior and our Lord. Face to face. What do you say about that preacher? What, what glory? Glory. That's the only thing I know to say. Paul said that's our hope. Of the future glory of God. I'd say what a day of hope. What a day of glory. But what a day of rejoicing. How is it even possible? How could someone of Adam's ruined race who has done so much evil and wickedness and sin against the living God, our sin drove the nails. How is it possible that one glorious golden day that we would make up the bride of Christ and be able to enter into the celestial city of God Walk down Beulah Boulevard, right up Hosanna Highway, into the throne room of the living God. How is that possible? Do you all have the same question? Well, I heard a little story. I actually read a little story this week that helped me understand it. I read of a dirty street kid. A dirty little street kid who walked up to the Buckingham Palace gates many years ago. and He had a big desire in that little boy's heart. He wanted to go in and see the palace, but more importantly, he wanted to go into the throne room and speak to the king. A dirty street kid. Well, he got up enough guts and he walked up there, but he got a stern rebuke by the palace guards. They said some very unkind things and told him to leave. It broke his heart. He was found off to the side with his grimy little hands wiping the tears from his dirty little face. Some well-dressed young man walked up to him and bent over and asked him what the trouble was. The little boy said, I just wanted to talk to the king. I just wanted to see him and they wouldn't let me in. That man smiled and said, son, take my hand. He took that little boy by the hand and he began to walk towards those soldiers. And in a moment, immediately, those soldiers that guarded the gate snapped to attention. The gate swung open wide 
And that man took that little boy right by the hand through the courtyard into the palace to the very throne of the king. That young boy had taken the hand of the prince, the king's son. And through him he had gained access to the king. And I thought, oh, what a glorious truth that you and I, who have been saved by the grace of God, have taken the pierced hand of the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Glory, the King's Son, and He will usher us in, and He has spiritually. He already has spiritually, but one of these glorious days, He will usher us in physically into the very throne room of God. I'd say, hallelujah, what a standing. But better yet, hallelujah, what a Savior. Aren't you saved yet? I believe I'd run to Jesus. Who in the world wouldn't want to get saved and have peace with God? Who in the world that's lost wouldn't want to get saved and have access spiritually now, physically in the day to come, to the very throne room of Almighty God? The Bible teaches us, thirdly, the third fruit I would give you is there's hope in God. Have you lived long enough to understand there's no hope in this world? Can I give you a news flash? This world's going to hell and destruction. There's no hope for this world. I know I'm going to make the tree huggers mad and the new earth people and all that stuff. I'm trying to be kind. This world's going to burn up. I know I read the bumper stickers. I see the Birkenstocks. Y'all going to let me? I, I get it. But you're wrong. This world's headed for destruction. If, if, you're, if you're unsure about that, would you please come back on Sunday night? We just started last week the book of Revelation. You'll learn. There's no hope in this world. Oh, but I praise God. There's hope in Jesus. There's hope in Him. There's hope in God. Is there hope for what I need? I know there is. There's hope for trials. Look at it in verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now this is a very, very perplexing statement. But I'm going to believe the Bible. See, I don't have to understand it all to believe it all. If you live long enough, you'll get it. You'll understand. And what we don't understand down here, we'll understand it better by and by. But if God says there's hope in God for even trials, let's look at that. Let's see what he means. So is there any glory in tribulation? That's what he says. Are you kidding me, Paul? Paul said there is glory in tribulations. If Paul said there was... I appreciate Paul as an instrument of God and as a disciple of God. This is the Word of God. He was just an instrument, but I can also find the same thing from the words of Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you'll have tribulation. All of us, all of Adam's race. You know what? I'm almost 49 years old. And I've proved that. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. I, I've proved that. Have you? I'd like to sit down and talk to you about an hour if you didn't nod your head or say amen. 
I don't know if you're in a bubble or what. I don't know. I'd like to crawl in there with you. But I have proved the word of God true. In this world, you shall have tribulation. The word of God says it rains on the just and the unjust. Has anybody helped me here this morning? This world's got a lot of tribulation and trials. But he said there's glory in that. I mean, think of that. Glory how? I mean, the cross and the crown, according to the word of God, go hand in hand. Grief and glory go together. So glory and tribulation is a real sign of Christian maturity. This impeccable hope and trials is a gift and a product of God's salvation. You don't believe me? Let's look at Job's life for a second. Look at Job's life. It began with one tragedy after another. Somebody asked me some years ago, said, would you, would you consider preaching through the book of Job? I thought, oh, Lord, it seems like every book I preach through I have to live. God wants you to preach it experientially, not just educationally. Look at Job's life. One trial, one tragedy right after another. And yet Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Crosses and crowns go together. Tribulation and glory go together. How in the world can a man bury ten children? And have a wife that says, cuss God and die. Stand and say, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. That's a true sign of Christian maturity. Because we can all say, bless the name of the Lord when he gives. It's a different state when he takes away. Can you stand and offer him praise in the storm? Again, it's a sign of Christian maturity. Preacher, I don't know that I've got that. You don't. Can I tell you, I don't have it. But God in me and God in you as believers is more than enough. If you'll follow the leadership of the Spirit of God in your life, you'll be shocked at not what you do, but what He does through you. It'll be when the tears are flowing and the storms are raging and the winds are howling and life is beating you down that somehow, some way, it's not you, but it's Him within you that'll lead you to stand and say, the Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Glory for tribulations. Ain't nothing in this world can offer that. Only God can give glory during tribulation. And by the way, that's not only a perplexing statement, but it's a progressive salvation. What does it mean? The Bible says, according to Paul, that tribulation brings patience. Patience brings experience. Experience brings hope. Again, you know the story of Job. Job was placed in the hands of Satan. Then he was placed in the hands of Wicked friends, you'll let me use that. They were called friends, but I don't see much friendship in Job's friends. I mean, who needs friends that will come by when your world's been turned upside down and say, okay, Job, who sinned, you or your children, your wife? They should have went on to the next door and rung. You don't need encouragement like that, but that's what he had. He was in the hands of Satan. He was in the hands of wicked friends. And then finally, he was in the hands of the living God. And so I want you to think about this progression. At the hands of Satan. At the hands of Satan. He received great tribulation. Lost everything. Buried his children. His wife 
felt so sorry for him. See, you misread that she's not a nagging wife. Don't, don't you give Miss Job a hard time. You didn't walk across the street from the cemetery bearing ten children either. She knew God is a God not to trifle with. What she was saying, just go ahead and curse him and get out of here because you can't stand any more suffering. He'll kill you. Bulls all over his body. Lost everything, buried his children. He was suffering greatly at the hands. Greatly from the hands of Satan. You remember the first chapter. But he wrought patience within him. And in the hands of wicked men, his patience was tried again. And through it he gained experience. And finally in the hands of the living God, Job came triumphantly through to last that hope that maketh not ashamed. How do you know that? Because this is the same man who said, Even though he slay me, yet will I serve him. This is the same man that stood and said that I know my Redeemer liveth. And though the skin worms destroy my body, in my flesh I shall see God. So God took tribulation. It wrought patience in his life. Because if he didn't have patience, he would have followed his wife's leading. He would have cursed God and been gone. And then he'd have went home defeated. He brought patience in his life, not only to deal with the criticism of his family, but the criticism of friends. And that brought experience. Why? Because you don't go by through anything alone. There's somebody come right behind Job that needed what Job was and what Job, Job did. Probably his wife. Maybe the others around him. And through that experience, it led him to a new hope, a new impeccable hope in him in which he would never, ever be ashamed. What God brought him through. He had an impeccable hope. So what does that mean? God's the only one I know that can take trials and turn it into glory. So you better hang on to him. Why? The world can't do that for you. If you're lost, you better get a hold of him. Because he's the only one that can bring it through unto glory unashamed. See, trials bring us closer to God and are used to make us more like His Son, Christ. Suffering builds Christian character. And the word here refers to an instrument, a long, heavy piece of timber with spikes on the end of it, used to thresh grain. When it was drawn over the grain, it separated the wheat from the chaff. And as we go through tribulations and we depend upon God's amazing grace, the trials only purify us and help get rid of the chaff. Burn off the dross to be a better product in the end. And then what about the power source? I'm glad you asked that. It's still in the text. He said, because the love of God, the end of verse 5, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which was given unto us. How in the world is all this administered to us, this hope and trials? By the love of God. I'm thankful that it's poured out into our hearts by the operation of the ministering Spirit of God. And don't ever forget that's who He is. He is the ministering Spirit of God. He ministers to our hearts in our times of trials. Paul said it best in Philippians 1, 6. He said, being confident of this very thing, that He which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus. He completes what He started. All right, are you not saved yet? Why don't you get saved? Why? Because our hope is enhanced by trials. Because, I'm going to help the choir here, because we do go through. They sing it. God said you're going to make it. Bless God, we're going to make it. We're just passing through. 
This world is the worst hell I'll ever endure. Praise God, I'm just passing through. All right, for those that are not convinced yet, one more fruit and we'll go home. There's an atonement from God. Verse 6 says here, For when we were yet without strength, empty, depleted, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man die for one, or one die, yet preadventure for a good man, some will even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love this. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, that we have been saved from the wrath through him. For if we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. Boy, what does that mean? I'm telling you, when you get saved, that means you're reconciled by his love. Outcast, alienated sinners, longing for a devil's hell, can be reconciled, brought back together with holy and righteous God through love. And I want to tell you that love's unconditional. The Bible says, I, want you, I prove it right here in the text. He says, You're empty. You're empty. You're not only empty because you tried everything the world has to offer and you come up. Empty, exhausted. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but most people's testimonies here, I tried through relationships to get what I was looking for and satisfaction to dull the pain, to numb the pain, whatever, just to cope. I tried it in a bottle. I tried it in prescriptions. I tried it in extracurricular activities. I tried it in career. I tried it in education. I tried to change a half a dozen times. And at the end of the day, you're still miserable. You're still empty. You're still exhausted. Somebody needs to say amen because... You, God saved you from that. But it's a, it's, it's a terrible cycle. It's an exhausting cycle. But listen to what the Bible says. When we were empty, when we were exhausted, I'm still in the book, you can read it. When we were enemies of God, He still loved me. When I was a God-hating, hell-bound sinner, nothing lovely about me, no intrinsic value about me, nothing to bring to the bargaining table. I had nothing to offer, and yet God, in that while we were yet sinners, He demonstrated, He commended His love towards us. While we were sinners, empty, alienated, enemies of God, He loved us with an everlasting love by dying for us on the cross of Calvary. We weren't good, we weren't righteous, no man cared for us, and yet God demonstrated unconditional love by dying for us. And by the way, it's incomparable. Because no matter how noble an act of human love may be, someone dying for somebody else, someone giving their life for somebody else for another one to live, no matter how noble or how kind that is, none of those acts compare to the love that saves us from the wrath to come. It is through the shedding of His precious blood, spotless blood, that atones for our sin. So only the blood of Jesus can cleanse you of your sin. So reconciled by his love and then let's get excited and we'll go home. Reconciled by his life. Now, he uses this term that really gets my juices flowing. Much more than. Son, I'm telling you, this ought to make any dead Baptist shout. 
much more than. Paul said, and I'm still in the text, by his death, he said it twice, so shed him his blood once, and then he says his death here in verse number 10. By his death, we are justified. What does that mean? God saved you when you were enemies. When you were a God-hating, hell-bound sinner, when you were far off, you were saved, brought nigh by the blood of Jesus. Still in the book. Why? Because I couldn't get good enough to get saved. I couldn't forgive any of my sins. So when I come to an altar and ask the Lord to save me, he saved me while I was an enemy. We're saved by his death. His death, we're justified. God saved us when we're enemies. And surely, now that God will keep on saving us, now that we're his children. I was an enemy and he saved me. When he saved me, now I'm his child. Now surely God's going to keep on saving. Preacher, have you lost it? I thought we're Baptists. We, we believe in once saved, always saved. Oh yeah, I do. But this is what theologians call progressive salvation. What does that mean? On November the 5th, 1981, as an eight-year-old boy, under deep conviction, I ran to Jesus. I asked him to forgive me, to come into my life, to save me, to be my Lord, my Savior. And I sung about it just a minute ago, the best I could do. Oh, the burden of soul rolled away. I knew in that moment, me and God were all right. I was no longer an enemy. I was a child. And so God saved me from hell on November the 5th, 1981. But God didn't put me on a shelf. My testimony does not just consist of 19, or November the 5th, 1981 and nothing else. See, that's what scares me because so many people said, well, I remember when I was saved and they can tell you nothing else about the activity of God in their life. I would question the activity of God in their life. But see, and from that moment, can I tell you, God saved me, past tense, but God's still saving me. Oh, he saved me from hell. Has he got to continue to do that? No, no, no. You know what he's saving me from? Me. He's saving me from me. I look in the mirror every morning, I see my greatest act of trouble. I don't need to point out your faults when I have enough time just dealing with mine. God's still bringing me, bringing me away from me. God is emptying me of me and filling me with him. God is saving me. He is sanctifying me. He is making me more like his son. The more I yield to his word and to his will every day of my life. He is growing me. He is saving me. And then one of these days, praise God, one of these days, in his presence, I will be completely, totally saved from the penalty. From, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So that's what he's saying. He said, if he loved me so much, think of this. If he loved me so much to spare not his own son when I was an enemy, now that I am saved, do you ever think he's going to stop saving us? Stop helping us? Stop loving us? Stop ministering to us? I'd say, surely it's far better now, much more then, that he saved us from sin, but now he's saving us from the wrath to come. So Paul said, if Christ's death accomplished so much, how much more his life, now he's living his life innocent through us, and through his life, now he is interceding for us in heaven. Boy, isn't it a joy to know that we have God on the throne who has his son at the right hand 
who is hearing your prayers and interpreting your prayers. Because I don't always know what to say. Anybody else? I don't always know if my prayers are rightly communicated or scripturally sound. I try. But I've got an advocate. I've got an intercessor. I've got one that knows the will of God better than I could dream it. And I know that his prayers hit the mark every time. And if I boggle up in my prayers a little bit, he knows my heart and he knows exactly what I need. He knows what I need better than I know what I need. And he's praying for me. That's why I'm here today. That's why I'm sustained. Because it's so much better now. Because through his life, through his life, it's better. Why? Because he died for me, I'm saved. Because he lives for me, I'm eternally saved. Let me say it again. Now that's much more. I thought of this and I thought about a will. I had to be an executor of a will. I had to be a power of attorney. I had to execute a will. My best friend passed away for his daughter. It's a, it's a work. But I learned some things about a will. A will is of no effect whatsoever until the death of that one who wrote it. Then the executor, whoever that is, takes over and sees to it that the will is obeyed to the letter that the inheritance is distributed in the manner of those who wrote the will saw fit. Then I thought about that as it relates to this text and us as believers being an heir of Christ. Jesus Christ wrote in all believers into his will. And by the way, he wrote his will and ratified it, made it permanent in his own blood. Yeah. Luke twenty-two twenty says, this cup of the New Testament in my blood is shed for you. And you know what he did? He just went ahead and died to put the will in force. And then he just went ahead and conquered death, hell, and the grave and lives again to enforce the will. And now his will is done in our lives. He rose from the dead and returned to heaven that he might enforce it upon himself to do the will, to distribute the inheritance. So, so we are saved and eternally saved. Why? Because he lives. We're an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. Because he lives. We have salvation that takes care of our past, our present, and our future. See, Christ died for us past. Christ lives for us present. He's coming for us. Future. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There's only one question. Only one question. If you're lost, why have you not already come? Why have you not already run to Jesus? Can we just look at this really quick? Don't you want peace? You're not going to find it in this world. You're going to get more and more empty, and more and more exhausted, and more without hope. Don't you want access to God? Can I tell you the greatest thing and greatest privilege in my life as a believer is to bow, to look up, to cry out, to think of God, to pray, and know that He hears me. And we've learned on Wednesday night, those who He hears, He helps. I need Him. Wouldn't you come? What about hope? You got hope beyond this veil of tears? There is none here. But there is hope in Jesus. What about it? Would you trust him this morning? Give him your life. God's been doing a really mighty good work in this place. We've seen several saved just in the last few weeks. I believe I'd get in on what God's doing. There's enough incentive here to run to Jesus. Father, thank you for the privilege. 
and the honor to share the truths of this great text. God, I know that the Apostle Paul didn't even scratch the surface of all the inexhaustible riches of your amazing grace. But God, these four wonderful principles, these truths, these fruits, are enough to draw all lost men, women unto you. And so, God, I've done the very best I know how to try to communicate those truths. And yet I realize that my feeble efforts are worthless. But, God, I depend upon your holy word. It's your word that's been shared. It's your word that goes forth in power and in demonstration. It is your word that draws men, women, boys, and girls. It is your word that transforms life. I believe in the power of the gospel. And so, God, would you use that to draw the net this morning? Through the mighty operation of the Spirit of God by the Word of God, Lord, would you convince lost people to get saved? Lord, let there be a harvest today. Let the halls of heaven rejoice over rescuing the perishing. Give hope and peace and access and atonement today. And we'll promise to rejoice with heaven. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.